Well, good evening. Uh, I'm Jono, and apparently I'm the alcohol police of EV Church, so nice to meet you. Uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, if you go to those events tomorrow, um, I'm sure there'll be some people at some of those places who are enjoying their Christian freedom um, and may have a drink, and there'll be plenty of people not drinking, of course, uh, and yeah, have a, have a good time, and of course, people are going to be sensible and godly and all that. Uh, but let me pray, let me pray as we now jump into the Word together. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for this chance to gather as your people. And thank you that we have the very words of God in front of us as we engage with these things. And, and Father, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, open our eyes to understand who you are, to know Jesus and to be fed by His Word. And I pray, Lord, that you do a mighty work among us by your Spirit, uh, by your Word. Amen. All right, well, let me tell you about a guy called Hugh Glass, I reckon one of the most unlucky blokes to have ever lived. Uh, he, was, he was quite lucky, actually, in that he never seemed to die, nothing could kill him, but he was really unlucky because anything that possibly could happen to a person that would be bad pretty much happened to this dude. Uh, he, he lived a couple hundred years ago, uh, there's a movie called The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio uh, about this guy. He started off life as a sailor, well not life, but his career as a sailor and really quickly the boat he was on got captured by pirates and they like conscripted him into their pirate gang and like, you're going to be a pirate now? And he's like, okay, I'll do that for a little bit. But when he saw the chance to escape, him and a mate jumped overboard off the ship and they swam two miles to shore and they found themselves in the wilderness in Texas, which is good, nice escape, right? We're no longer pirates anymore. Problem was, very quickly, some Native American Indians captured him and they caught up with him and then him and his mate were in a lot of trouble. This is pretty hectic, but they grabbed like pine needles and stuck them all into the skin of his friend and turned him into like a pine cone and then lit his friend on fire and that was pretty horrific and Hugh saw that all go down and he's like, I don't want that. And so he used some dye and he traded this stuff with them to get out of that and the Indian's like, you can join us now. So then he went from being a pirate to an Indian and he was being an Indian for a little while in the tribe. Uh, and then he went to the city and he was like, I like this better, I'm going to stay here. Uh, and so he kind of bailed on being in the tribe and, and joined up with a company whose job it was to like trap animals and get their fur, get their pelts. And so he did that for a little bit and really quickly he got shot in the leg by an arrow from another Indian tribe. But that didn't bother him too much because he was Hugh Glass and he was heaps tough. But here's where the story takes a pretty bad turn. And so bear that in mind. One day, he, he was in the woods and he wandered into this clearing in the bushes and he realised that he was actually in like a bear's nest. And if you've seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. But this mama bear comes out and it bites him and grabs him and slams him into the ground and this bear holds him down and other bears, the little cubs come and they maul him for a little bit and they're getting into him and then his friends come and shoot and scare the bears away. And so he kind of just makes it, he's, he's really messed up from being attacked by these bears. One arm works, one doesn't, one leg works, one doesn't, he can't stand, he can't talk properly, he can barely see and he looks really close to death. And so like a bunch of good friends, do you know what his friends did? They took all of his possessions because he doesn't need them, he's going to die and they bailed and they left him in the woods. But the problem with Hugh is he didn't die, he doesn't ever die, instead he starts crawling the 250 mile journey across the countryside 
back to civilization. And this takes like weeks and weeks and months and months. Um, a snake like slithers by him and Hugh Glass, being Hugh Glass, grabs a snake and kills it and just eats it because he needs food. He chases some wolves off like an animal carcass and eats their dinner, steals their dinner. Eventually his legs start walking and he starts walking and then he gets a horse and he finally gets back to civilization. It's insane and half of that's in the movie. The rest of it sounds too ridiculous but it's, look him up, it's amazing. Never has one person gone through so much random punishment in their life as this guy, Hugh Glass. But here's the thing with with this guy's story, at least. He didn't choose any of that for himself. It's not like he went looking for any of that. He was just really, really unfortunate. Bad stuff just kept happening. He's on a ship, pirates attack, he bails from that, gets the land, Indians grab him, bears attack and more Indian attacks. It's an amazing survival story but he didn't choose any of that for himself. But here's the thing, what if someone willingly chose that sort of a path for their life? Imagine a person who's got it all together, being like, no thanks, I'll leave all that behind, I'll take the Hugh Glass treatment very much, give, give that to me instead. That would be insanity, wouldn't it, to choose that sort of a life for yourself? What could possibly drive a person to choose that sort of a life for themselves? Well, that's the Apostle Paul here in tonight's passage. We've just heard the details of Paul's life, it was read out there by Shammah, and it's crazy. The stuff that Paul endured is insane, the things that he continued in are crazy, but he did all of that, he endured all of that, he continued in all of these things on purpose. He actually chose this life for himself. And what we're going to see tonight as we dig into this part of the Bible is the reason, the thing that was driving Paul. It was everything to him. The thing that drove him to continue on, it was everything to him. And in fact, what we're going to see is it's everything to us as well. It's deeply tied up in this question, who is Paul? Who does Paul represent? Is Paul who he claimed to be? Here's the big question we're going to answer tonight. Can you trust Paul and therefore, can you trust the Bible? That's the question we're going to be answering tonight. And it's actually the same question that this church here in Corinth, in this part of the Bible, are wrestling with as well. Now, if you've not been with us and you've kind of jumped in tonight and you're joining us, let me bring you up to speed on what's going on in this book, which is actually a letter to a church 2,000 years ago. Paul is claiming to be an apostle of Jesus. That means he's claiming to have been sent as Jesus' representative to lead this church, to to lead the church as it's growing in in the beginning of, um, of the church's existence. And it's the same reason why tonight, as we open this letter written by Paul to Corinthians, as Christians, we believe that this isn't just some guy's random thoughts about stuff, but actually, it's God's Word to us through His messenger, Paul, the Apostle. So, when Paul's speaking to this church here in 2 Corinthians, his claim is that he's speaking on behalf of Jesus. And likewise, as we read his words tonight, the claim is, we're hearing the words of Jesus through Paul. And so, here's the question, can we trust that that's the case? Can we trust that that's true? Now, the problem here in Corinth is that some other leaders had kind of come in from the side and had started to undermine Paul. They're saying, don't listen to Paul, listen to us instead, we're good, he's no good. They're calling themselves, later on, uh, we heard it last week actually, they're calling themselves 
super apostles. They're saying we're better apostles of Jesus than Paul and they're actually beginning to boast about how good they are and saying that Paul's no good. And so, here in this little section, Paul kind of hesitantly starts to play their game. He says, all right, they're going to boast about how good they are, I'll, I'll play your game, I'll boast as well. Skip up to verse 16, just before our reading there, have a look there. Paul starts to play their game. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. I'll play their game, I'll do the boasting thing. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, notice he's conscious that he speaks on behalf of God, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in this way, as the world does, I too will boast." So he's saying, this whole thing is dumb, I shouldn't be talking about why you should follow me and not them, I shouldn't be doing this boasting thing, but if I have to, I will. (laughs) And then in verse 19, he starts to get a little bit sarcastic, a little bit sassy. Have a look at verse 19 there. He says, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Now, I've added the so there, but that's how I imagine it was said. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, which doesn't mean to put on like kicks, it means to like consider yourself better than everyone else, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Do you hear his sarcasm? I'm sorry I wasn't strong enough to be abusive to you like they were. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. And so, the stakes here are really high, to reject Paul would actually be to reject Jesus, because Paul is sent by Jesus as an apostle, and so what's this church going to do with Paul? That was their question, but that's actually our question tonight as well. Should we trust Paul? He wrote half of the New Testament, he wrote half of it, should we trust the Bible? Because think about it for a second with me, what if Paul just made all this stuff up? What if this just was his random opinion on some ideas? Well, we read his teachings in the Bible and Paul says things like, Jesus is the only way to get to God. He says things like, Jesus is God and you should worship Him as God. He says things like, Jesus is the one who rules your life and so you should obey Him. And so, if Paul's just making this stuff up, guys, I don't want to be a downer, but you're wasting your time. If he's just making this stuff up, I'm not sure what you're doing here tonight. The fact that we're here, all gathered around this thing called the Bible, it's it's an absolute waste of time, sitting in this building built so that we could get together. It's craziness, getting together to sing praises to Jesus, to listen to the Bible, all of that is stupid, if this is just made up. You would be wasting your life. But the flip side of that is also true. If this is true, if Paul really does represent Jesus as his apostle, then what Paul says has enormous implications for your life. Not just for Christian people, but for everyone, everyone on the planet. There is a heaven and a hell, says Paul. There is a way to be right with this God, such that you can be confident you'll go to heaven to be with God. There's a God who you need to know and love and obey and follow. And so, why trust the Bible? Why trust Paul? 
Now, I should say, as we come at this question tonight, we're not going to have time to look at that question of why trust the Bible in its totality. We're not going to have a chance to look at that question from every possible angle, and there's a lot that could be said about that question. There's books that have been written about it. We run a series here called Life, which is on next term, which will answer those kind of questions as well. <clears throat> but tonight, what we'll do particularly is we're going to deep dive into this person, Paul, and look at his trustworthiness and, and his message that's so important. And so, let's dive in. Did Paul just make this stuff up? Well, if you were going to make up a lie about something, a big lie about something, not a little lie like, you know how parents teach their kids that uh, Santa Claus and the tooth fairy are real? That's a strange thing that we do, but lots of people do that. Not a small lie like that, but a big lie, the kind of lie you take to your grave. What would motivate you to spend your life making up an enormous lie like that? People do it for power, to get something for themselves, to get rich, to get popular, to get famous. People can make up big lies for those sorts of things. Well, here's the first piece of evidence tonight. Paul was doing really well before he met Jesus. Now, Paul starts his, his boasting there in verse 22, and he starts by reminding us of his backstory, where he's kind of come from. Have a look there, verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? Oh, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Now, these super apostles that Paul's kind of competing with, they're bragging about their Jewish heritage, Israelites, Abraham's descendants, Hebrews, and Paul's like, well, same here, I've got all that covered in spades, I've got all the Jewish roots you could possibly want, but that's almost an understatement when you have a look at who Paul is. Paul was an up-and-coming Jewish leader. He was, a, he was a big dog. In fact, let's take a close look. Come back into Acts, where the first Bible reading was. Come back into Acts and come back to Acts chapter 8 with me. In fact, Acts chapter 7 with me. Come back there and check out Paul's backstory, who he was before he became this apostle. Uh, Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr is about to be killed for his belief in Jesus and you can pick it up in verse 57 at the end of the chapter there, this is what the crowd does, Acts chapter 7 verse 57. <clears throat> at this, the crowd covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, Stephen, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, throwing rocks at him to kill him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, Saul is Paul. He gets a name change after he meets Jesus. But this is our introduction to this guy, Paul. In fact, have a look down uh, the last verse there. Uh, after he died, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing of him. And then have a look down at chapter 8, verse 3. Um, you know, the church is getting persecuted. But Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged people, both men and women, and put them in prison. So, in his past life, Saul, Paul, same guy, his business was persecuting Christians. And guys, business was good, he was doing well. People loved him for what he was doing. You notice that they laid their coats at his feet. It's like a sign of respect that we're doing this for you. He had power. He was powerful. He was dragging people out of their homes and putting them in jail. He was the man. Picture like a top dog politician mixed with, I don't know, the chief 
commissioner or something, I don't know what a chief commissioner does, the, the dude in charge of the police, a politician and a priest, a religious person, all rolled into one, he had power, <laughs> he was respected, he was loved, he would have had money, he was doing just fine and he had a cause to live for as well. He really believed he was doing God's work by stamping out this Christianity heresy that was started and all of that changed in an instant when he met Jesus. That's what we saw in our first Bible reading. And so, did Paul make this stuff up? Can we trust the Bible? First piece of evidence, he was doing just fine before he met Jesus. Second piece of evidence, Paul willingly lost it all for Jesus. Come back into 2 Corinthians, our passage tonight, come back there. Verse 23, you can see Paul's boast starts to, to get a bit weird here. Verse 23, He's still comparing himself. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I've worked much harder, which all sounds pretty normal. He's just saying, I'm doing a better job. But then it gets weird. He says, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Okay, weird flex, man. That's that's, that's an odd one, isn't it? Now, he's starting to boast about going to prison lots, and getting whipped from the Romans lots, and from the Jews in fact, and, and, and almost dying often. He gets really specific in his little details that follow in verse 24, it's like the Hugh Glass story all over again. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, which was the Jewish kind of corporal punishment, five times that happened to him. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, which is what the Romans did to people who were out of line. Once I was pelted with stones, which is what happened to Stephen. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I don't know about you, but I reckon the first shipwreck for me would probably be the last shipwreck. I think if that happened just once, I'd be like, I'm going to stay away from boats. But Paul, he spent a night and day in the open sea, like the ship breaks and then he's floating around in the ocean with the sharks, that's like top five fears for me. After that, I'd be like, no more boats. Now, why does he keep getting shipwrecked? Is he just super, super, super unlucky like Hugh Glass? No, it's because sailing back then was really sketchy um, and he did it a lot because he went all over the place and travelled all the time. Um, there's, a, there's an ancient philosopher, a guy called Secundus, his, his vibes, I've said, on sailing, here's what he said, he says, what is a boat? It's a sea-tossed object, a foundationless home, a well-crafted tomb, you should name a boat that, good tomb, a wooden cubicle, a confined fate, a plaything of the wind, it's sailing death, uncertain safety, the prospect of death, he says a lot of stuff, right? It, it's bad, is his point. Boating was not a good vibe. <clears throat> but for some reason, Paul kept doing it. He kept getting on those boats. Something was driving him again and again to keep at it. And likewise, Paul kept hitting the road as well and travelling by land. Look at verse 26. I've been constantly on the move, I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, which is everyone but the Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. Everywhere he went, there was danger as he travelled. We think about travellers like a sneaky road trip up to Crescent Head with a Macca's stop, but for for Paul, travel meant 
robbers and people who were trying to kill you on the road, swollen rivers that were dangerous to cross, danger everywhere. And when he finishes travelling through the countryside, he gets to a city and he's like, phew, at least I'm safe in the city, except he wasn't because in the city he was faced with all this opposition. His Jewish countrymen wanted to kill him, the Gentiles wanted to kill him. There was danger everywhere. Verse 27, he's been working his guts out, sleepless nights, hungry, without shelter, naked. And on top of all of that, verse 28, 29, there's the internal suffering that he faced as he's consumed with all this worry for all these churches that he started all over the place. And so, what are you meant to do with all of this? What's the point of this? If you want to be a real Christian, make sure you get beat up lots like Paul's? No. Instead, we're meant to see who Paul is. I want you to notice what he's doing with this strange boasting here. He's actually a a reverse boast, is what's going on. It's a reverse boast. So, the things he's boasting about, they might they might to us sound a little bit courageous, they might sound like, oh wow, he's pretty impressive that he did all of this, <clears throat> but that's because we're from Australia, you know, the land of tall poppies and the underdog, this kind of stuff impresses us, but in Paul's context, the things that he's boasting about here, they're actually shameful, they're weak, they're humiliating things to have happened to a person, it's the stuff that happens to losers, that's his point. Look at verse 30, He says, if I must boast, and that's what he's been doing, I'll boast in the things that show my weakness. He's boasting about his weakness. See, the Corinthians and their super apostles, they boast about their gifts and their strengths and their victories and all that, but Paul's boasting about his weaknesses, all the moments of his greatest weakness. And we'll see this next week, in fact, but the reason he does, because when he's weak, well, God is the one who is strong, who gets to do it all. <clears throat> That's why verse 33 has this strange little story, he finishes there, where he mentions being lowered in a basket out a window down a city wall to escape. Now, you, you might be a bit lost on us, but he's actually running away with his tail between his legs there. It's a humiliating, strange moment. In this context, in Paul's time, the Romans, they had a medal for the soldier who was like the courageous soldier who was first up the wall to take a city and Paul's like, well, I was the dude first out the window, down the wall to escape. It's like a comedic reversal of bravery. He says, I'm weak. God's the strong one. It's a reverse boast. He's undermining the very things the Corinthians would have him boast about. Picture like... um, some boxers or some UFC fighter type guys, you know how these guys, they, before they, they weigh in and then they fight each other and they, that one looks like they're about to kiss a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Imagine if they're doing their weigh-in thing and then one was like, Mwah, and pecked him on the cheek, that'd be pretty funny. Anyway, what they do here is they boast, right? They look all tough, they stare at each other, they don't kiss typically, instead they're like, oh, you know, one guy's like, man, I've knocked out more people than anyone, I've broken so many jaws, I've smashed people's faces all the time. Imagine if the other boxer was like, oh yeah? Well, I've been knocked out a lot of times myself. I've had my face smashed so many times, all my teeth have fallen out from all the times I've been punched in the face, I've been punched a lot. It would be like this weird 
reversal that undermines the whole point of the whole boasting match when suddenly you're like, no, I'm a punching bag. It, it undermines the whole concept that being able to smash people's faces is a good thing. Paul is undermining their worldview of what to look for in a leader. The Corinthians, they want the strong, impressive, amazing looking one. But Paul's saying, no, you've got it all wrong, you've got it upside down. I follow Jesus, I'm Jesus' apostle. You know Jesus? The guy who died the humiliating death on a cross? The suffering Jesus? I follow that guy. You Corinthians, you've got it backwards. Paul's flipping it all on its head. Now let's stop for a second and think about where this lands for us if you're a Christian. Where does this land for us as Christians? Now, if you're someone who's here tonight checking this stuff out, still deciding whether you want to be a Christian, this is really helpful for you because you get a little insight into what you're signing up for. But three things, weakness, suffering and risk. Let's think about those three things. First of all, weakness. I wonder, if you had to describe the best servant of Jesus, what would you say? What would you imagine? the person who's got the most impressive skills on a ministry team, the person who always knows what to say when they're talking to someone, the person who's up front all the time, the, the, the person that everyone knows, the person who looks like they're killing it as a Christian, maybe. Remember, as Paul drops this list here, verse 23, he is saying, this is what the best servant of Jesus looks like, but the answer, verse 30, is weakness our weakness displays God's strength in the most beautiful way. And so, friends, if you're weak, well, you're in good company. You're right where God would have you be. And so, when you perhaps turn up on a Friday night here after a long week of work, ready to have a crack at being a churn leader or a youth group leader or something like that, and you're just, you know, struggling with the weight of life and weighed down, when you're so aware of your sin and all the ways that you failed and all the ways you keep falling short, but you keep getting up each day and you pray to God and you ask Him for strength and have another go, praying that God would help you another day, our God delights to show strength in our weakness. Second, suffering. Now, it's pretty obvious in this passage, isn't it? Paul's suffering here stands out like an Aussie tourist in Bali. They're pretty hard to miss. Where's the beer? Like, it's pretty hard to miss. But what are you meant to do with all this suffering? The point isn't go look for suffering like Paul did, like try and be him and somehow get yourself beat up. Notice in verse 33, we saw it before, Paul does escape out the window and run off. So, if you can escape persecution and suffering, well, good, good to avoid it. But don't shy away from living a life for Jesus, even when what it might bring is suffering, persecution. In fact, this same guy, Paul, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not always at every moment, but if you keep following Jesus, suffering will come and find you. Are you up for that? Are you willing to follow Jesus even when it's costly, even when it's unpopular, even when what you believe doesn't conform to what the rest of the world out there says? Even if it costs you a job, 
even whatever it costs you, wherever Jesus takes you, are you up for that? Third, risk. Now, this passage has been really helpful, challenging to me this week. I've got to tell you, I hate risk. I'm terrified of it. I don't like the unknown, what could happen, but I don't know if it will. I don't like that. But what strikes me about Paul here is he keeps going in spite of the risk. The risk is obvious, it's there, but he keeps going anyway. Imagine spending a night and day in the open sea after your first shipwreck and then being like, whew, okay, that was pretty intense. Time to get on another boat. Let's go again. Imagine doing that. Imagine getting chased out of the city by an angry mob or beaten or or whipped or whatever it is and then being like, okay, glad I got out of that one. (sighs) Time to go to another city, probably by boat, let's go. You preach the same message there. I think as we look at Paul here in these verses, we imagine him as some sort of a superman who's just like invincible and doesn't care what happens to him, but that's not the case. He says it himself in verse 30. He says, I'm weak. I'm not Superman. But his convictions are strong. Strong enough to stomach the risk. How do you, do, how do you go at following Jesus even when it's risky? A hundred years ago, there was an enormous missionary um, movement that came out of England and other places like that, where thousands of young people, just like yourselves... Uh, left home for a foreign land with the goal of preaching the gospel to people who didn't know about Jesus. Here's the thing though, they didn't pack a suitcase, they packed their own coffin, for real, they'd get a coffin, they'd put their possessions in it, book a one-way ticket on a boat and they would head off. And their goal wasn't to die, it wasn't like they were out to get killed, but the developing world at the time was full of danger and unrest and and sickness, and they went, they went knowing the risk. Are we too afraid, perhaps, to do hard things, perhaps costly things, things that are risky for Jesus? Now, I don't know where God might call you in your lifetime, what opportunities God might put in front of you, But when those moments come, will you let the possible risks be the thing that rule your decision-making, your comfort, lack of risk, or will you be willing to lay your life down for Jesus? That's a question for me and that's a question for you guys. There's a lot to think about there. Let's come back, though, to our question from the beginning. Let's come back to where we started. Can you trust Paul? Can you trust the Bible? The evidence we've seen so far, number one, well, Paul was doing really well for himself before he met Jesus, and number two, Paul willingly lost it all for Jesus. That's what we've seen so far. Let's see if we can pull all this together and finish up. What on earth drove Paul to do all of this? What was driving him to do all of this? Why the change of life? Why the backflip? Why go from being the bloke who's chucking rocks at people to being the one who's copping the rocks, having them thrown at him? Why do that backflip? Two things. Number one, here it is. Paul really did encounter the resurrected Jesus. Now, back in Acts chapter 9, which was read for us earlier, that's what we saw there. That was Paul encountering the resurrected Jesus after he died. In fact, come back to Acts chapter 9, have a look at it again. Verse 1, it says that Paul's still breathing out murderous threats, so he's out to get the Christians. And then verse 3, 
bang, a light from heaven hits him and suddenly Jesus is there. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, says Jesus. And boy, does Jesus have a job for Paul. This wasn't in our reading, but flip over to verse 15 there, have a look there. This is Jesus' job for Paul uh, and he's using a messenger, a guy called Ananias. Jesus says to Paul, go, this man, you, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's a pretty good job description, hey? He says, Paul, you're going to play for my team now. You're with me now and you're going to suffer to bring this message to the world. Paul really was confronted by the resurrected Jesus and it flipped his life upside down. What else could possibly account for that sort of a backflip, to that sort of a change, to willingly go from the guy giving out beatings to to being the one taking them from respect and power and, and safety to humiliation, a life on the run, danger, travel, hatred from this world that doesn't want to hear about Jesus... He really met Jesus. A man who publicly, Jesus, a man who publicly died and was resurrected back to life again, Paul met that guy. Now, you might hear all of this and go, well, maybe there's a bit of proof in that, maybe, but what if this Paul guy is just like heaps unhinged? What if he's just a crazy person? He really, really believed it, sure, but what if he made a mistake or something like that? Well, here's the thing, guys, the same thing that we've just seen about Paul is also true for all the other apostles, the other eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Same story, I'm not going to do them all tonight, thankfully, but check out this up on the screen here. These are the 12 um, disciples of Jesus and some of the other eyewitnesses who put together accounts and so on. And you can see some of the things that happened to them. Jesus' brother James, killed by the sword. Philip, crucified. A bunch of them crucified. Stoned, beheaded. Mark, dragged into pieces, I think by horses from memory. Um, Only one of them wasn't killed, and that's John, who was exiled to an island and put in prison. Imagine imagine just being Thomas, right? (laughs) And, And I don't know how long he lived exactly, but imagine being Thomas... And you see all these other guys suddenly get crucified and killed and dragged into pieces and and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have made up this lie thing about Jesus because it is getting us in some serious trouble. That that just doesn't make sense, right? You don't make up a lie and then go and die for it. If this was just a big lie, at some point very early on in the piece, they would have been like, whoa, 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 big prank, it's okay, Jesus is still dead, I promise, please don't kill me. That never happened, they preach this message till their death. You don't die for a lie. Paul and the other apostles really met Jesus and it changed Paul's life. But more than that, more than just meeting Jesus, here's the second thing that was driving Paul, why this crazy life, enduring suffering, because he was utterly convinced of the resurrected Jesus' message. Once he knew who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, the next big thing for Paul was, well, his message must be heard by every single person on the face of the planet. And that was the job Jesus gave him back in Acts 9. And we're going to finish on this, but what was that message that was so important that 
every single person had to hear it. Come back to 2 Corinthians, but flick back to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which has an amazing summary of this message that the world so desperately needed to hear that Paul was willing to die for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. There's two incredible halves to this verse. You can see it up on the screen as well there. The first half, God made him, that's talking about Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin, he was perfect, to be sin for us. At the cross, Jesus, the perfect sinless one, who would, he was treated as the sinner. He went, underwent the judgment of God on the cross for us. Our record of sin was given to him, placed on him, and he underwent the judgment of God for it. And here's the second amazing piece of that verse. So that in Jesus, the result for us is that we might be given, become the righteousness of God. The righteousness, the perfect track record of Jesus is given to us. At the cross, Jesus is judged as a sinner and we are given a right standing with God. A perfect position, saved from hell, from the judgment of God, now to be called children of God, in permanent relationship with God. That's the message that Paul got. He was utterly convinced of it. And it's the message that he desperately wants his Corinthian church to get and wants them to hold on to it. It's the message that God wants you to get tonight. That message. You don't need to die guilty of your sin. There's another way, there's a better way, a way of forgiveness, relationship with God. That's what's on offer in Jesus. That's His message. I don't know if you've, if you've been around here for a little while and you're looking at the Christians around you, um, you've probably noticed that us Christians really, really want people to hear this message. We want everyone to get this Jesus thing. I don't know if you've picked that up, but I imagine you have. But have you ever looked at Christians, if you're not a Christian, looked at Christians and kind of gone, cool, cool, this Jesus stuff seems good for them, but why do they need to go and bother other people about this stuff and tell me about it? What, why, why bother me? <laughs> Well, here's why. We really believe this stuff is true. Not just true for me while you go figure out your way to God, we really believe that Jesus is the way to God. He's the way to heaven. We believe that that's actually true. Christians aren't just crazy people who like, you know, giving their point of view to other people for it. No, no. I, 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 you've heard a bit about me tonight. Don't like risk. I also don't like confrontation. I'm not a fan. I don't like complaining about stuff at a cafe. Like someone could bring me a bowl of pasta with a dead possum in it and I'd be like, I'll just eat around that. I don't want to bother them by complaining. But here I'm up here telling you that Jesus is the only way to get to God. It's not because I like confrontation, it's because I really believe it's true. If your mate has plucked up the courage to invite you along tonight or something like that, maybe they could be really dumb, they could have been tricked, maybe but they definitely believe this stuff is true and I don't believe it's because they're dumb or they've been tricked. And so in love, we, we want you to hear this stuff. Paul's writing to this church to say, I'm legit, I'm an apostle, I'm from Jesus, you need to hear what I have to say, not because Paul's got a big head, but because I represent Jesus. It's a matter of life and death. And that's the same thing that God's saying to you tonight as well. You can trust Jesus' messenger, Paul. You can trust the Bible 
And the message is so important. It's your only hope. Now, I recognise if you are very new to these things and not thought a lot about them, you've probably got a million questions uh, and you've got a lot of things you want to wrestle with and I totally get that. And so, can I suggest to you a few possible things you might want to do in light of tonight? Um, Some options, you choose, do whatever you want with this. But one thing you might want to do is read some of the Bible yourself, on your own. Come over to the barrels out there, meet some friendly people, they'll give you a welcome bag and in it is a Bible. Take it home uh, and you'll find um, some books like Matthew, Mark and Luke and John are in that Bible. Those are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. So, meet this man Jesus on the pages of the Bible and you go away and make up your own mind. Is, is he Jesus just some big fraud? Is he a liar? Or is he who he says he is? Read the Bible yourself. Number two, I mentioned this earlier, but we run a series here once a term called Life or Explaining Christianity, where what we do is we talk about the message of Jesus, but we give people a chance to examine it and poke and prod it and ask questions and challenge it. If, if you want to, come along to that. It'd be such a good thing to come and join us for. And that's not on for a little while, actually. It'll be a little while into next term. So, if you want to come along, maybe make the step tonight of going, hey, I want to do that thing. Tell someone who brought you along, hey, make sure I come to that life thing or, or just make a note in your own head. Plan on it. Number three, well, come back next week. It won't hurt you. Come back to church next week. We'll eat dinner again. We'll hang out. We'll read the Bible. It'll be a good time. Keep wrestling with these things. I'm going to pray in a minute, but before I do, I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to, they're going to lead us in song in a second. We've seen some big things. And so let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much that we can trust your word, that it is good, that it is full of life. And Father, I pray for those of us tonight who know and trust Jesus, Lord, that you would help us to continue in that, even when it's costly, even when it means hard things. I pray, Lord, that we'd keep following Jesus, keep clinging to Him, keep obeying Him. And I pray for those of us tonight who are still wrestling with these things, new to it. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, give them chances again to hear your word and consider it deeply and and make wise decisions about what they're going to do with this person, Jesus. Amen.